Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB. And unfortunately, I'm alone in the studio today. But we have a great show for you. We have an interview with Antonio Damasio, author of The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures, that I recorded with LARB editor-in-chief and publisher, Tom Lutz. Without further ado, let's listen to the interview. Today we have Antonio Damasio with us in the studio to talk about his new book, The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. Antonio is a professor of neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy at the University of Southern California, where he is also the director of the Brain and Creativity Institute. Antonio's work has won numerous prestigious awards at what we might call the intersection of neuroscience, cognition, and humanist inquiry. He is the author of Self Comes to Mind, Looking for Spinoza, The Feeling of What Happens, and Descartes' Error. His latest book, The Strange Order of Things, explores the often disregarded and degraded status of emotions and feelings informing the very basis of our human consciousness and the complex systems of our social organization and various cultures. Welcome to the show, Antonio. Pleasure to be here. So just to start, can you give us a sense of the main argument of the book with regard to feeling and human development? In regard to feeling is that I think that feelings have not been given the credit they deserve as origins and especially as motivators of cultural instruments and cultural practices. Hmm. That's how I, I start the book, really, is by calling attention to the fact that this has been overlooked. Whenever you ask somebody, how do you think cultures came about? What made them be to begin with, sort of at the point of origin? Mm. And almost invariably, the answer you get is that, well, it has to do with our remarkable human intellect because we're so prodigiously smart and uh, with the fact that we have language, with the fact that we have a very special sociality and things of that sort. But you never hear somebody say, well, it simply had to be because of feelings, and particularly because of feelings of pain or feelings of suffering mm. or the feelings that come from either having pleasure or having the prospect of pleasure. And that's where I think the root of cultures really is. That's the central point. Then there's something that comes with that central point, which at first I actually didn't particularly see, and that is that it's not just the motivation of cultures, but also the negotiation that is necessary for a culture to proceed. And as a part of it, the fact that feelings are arbiters of the process. In other words, when you think, for example, about cultural selection, about the fact that you can have a particular cultural artifact uh, or instrument or what have you, or practice, and you realize that if it really works, it is kept in the culture. If not, it's weeded out and deleted pretty much along the same selection lines that you find in biological, non-cultural evolution. Mm. And that role of deciding, of monitoring the success or the failure of a cultural invention is something that feelings help determine. So, you know, I, I give in the book the example of suffering as a result of a disease, 
and you, as a result of that, as a result of the pain you feel or the discomfort you feel, you go to a doctor and the mm -hmm. doctor gives you a treatment. How do you know that the treatment works and how does the doctor know? You know because the feeling that led you to seek help is also feeling is also going to be the way of deciding whether or not the help was effective. Right. You go from the feeling of pain to the feeling of non-pain or even the feeling of well-being. It's that dynamic that is so critical and which I think is clearly overlooked. Just to get a sense of some of the definitions, because I think that oftentimes in popular culture we use a lot of these terms synonymously. So how do you distinguish between feelings emotions and something like affect. Okay, well, it's very simple and, um, as you say, constantly ignored. Yeah. So emotions, to begin with, are actions. When you smile at me, what you have is a series of actions that are taking place in your face. And if you are very happy, there will be also actions that are taking place in your body and outside of the face. And there are actions that are taking place in your body internally that neither you nor I can see. So emotions are through and through action programs. And they're action programs that get to be played like a little concert. The notes are fundamentally the same, but you can vary the interpretation. And it can be more intense or less. And you can miss some components to make that difference. You, you get the gist of it. Mm -hmm. Feelings are purely and simply experiences, they're mental experiences of what happens in your body, either when you are emoting or when you're not emoting and you're simply feeling the state of your body. So the distinction couldn't be more clear. Right. One is about actions, which really means that any creature that has a well-organized living process can have emotions because it can have the action programs that accord with a certain contour, with a certain line. But feelings can only be had by creatures that have the possibility of having minds and experiences and therefore require a level of complexity that is not available in the simple creatures. And we, of course, have both. So we can emote and we can have feelings. Just one more thing on the feelings, since this is a very important question, and I'm glad you asked it, is that a good part of the feelings that we have on a day are feelings that are not emotional feelings. They're feelings about the state of our body. So, for example, you can right now, we in this room can decide if we are feeling well, if we have a lot of well-being, or if we are feeling a little bit sick, or if we're tired, or if we have a lot of energy, or not so much, or if we're hungry or thirsty, and so forth. All of those are the kinds of spontaneous feelings that I describe as homeostatic. They have to do with the regulation of our life. And they don't require an emotion. Now, what is interesting is that when you emote, when you are suddenly in fear or angry or sad or joyful, the emotion program is engaged and a number of actions happen. And guess what? They're going to alter the way your fundamental life process is going. And so it, it, it's as if you have the spontaneous feelings there all the time, continuously, whether you want it or not. You mm -hmm. may not pay attention to them, but they're there. The feelings are there portraying the state of your life. And then you have this 
this new development, which is an emotion, which tends to be relatively short-lived. Sure. And during that period, there are changes that happen in the body, and they too get to be experienced. And they sort of ride on top of the other feelings. So there are these two kinds, and the best way of referring to them is spontaneous feelings or provoked feelings, which is what I call all the feelings that come in as a result of a, an emotion. You still had one more question, which I did not forget. Affect. Which is affect. Affect is all of it. The whole system the whole of system. those so experiences. Everything that has to do with drives, motivations, emotions, mm -hmm. feelings, you can describe under this big umbrella of affect. One of the things that is different in this book than in, in previous books is that you go much farther back in evolutionary terms, in terms of the origins of life and the origins from single-cell organisms yep. to multicellular organisms, and you find that something very much like emotion is at work in these very simple organisms. Yes, precisely. You're quite correct. First is the fact that if you're dealing with life, it would be a little bit strange if we would stop at life in humans or the, 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 the creatures that are closest to us, like, say, primates in general. We can obviously go back much further, and we have been going back further because we have more and more good biology that tells us not only about what happens in vertebrates, but also in invertebrates. I mean, you have insects all around us, and many of them with the huge complexity of uh, behavior. But what is interesting is that you can really go further back to unicellular creatures, whether with a nucleus or not, but even without a nucleus, creatures such as bacteria. And they are of an enormous complexity, of an enormous intelligence, and they are living. And in fact, they are the first living creatures on Earth. And they go back to, you know, almost four billion years ago, which is quite a lot, I guess. And those creatures have, as you say, very complex behaviors, and some of those complex behaviors are emotive. So when you look at unicellular creatures and you say, we have to look under a microscope, but if you look at what happens in different environments, if the creature is in an environment that is nourishing and the nutrients are there available for the creature to have, what happens is that the creature is actually physically, bodily relaxed. And if the nutrients are very clearly available, the creature is actually relaxed in a way that resembles a little bit the relaxation that you can have, you know, under the sun when you are sunbathing yourself. Bacteria as slackers. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there, there you go. But you can also have a situation in which those unicellular creatures are being threatened by others or by a physical possible injury. You know, you can poke them. And when you poke them, guess what? I guess we cannot do this for your listeners, but that you li literally cringe. You fold into yourself, mm. and you fold into yourself in a reaction of defense that is not very different from the reaction that you or I would have if somebody would come and try to, you know, poke us in right. the face, and you would cringe and wince and pull back. That's exactly it. And this is, a, I think, a very good example of the essence of emotive behavior. Emotive behavior is behavior that counts, but it counts because it's about something that matters, which happens to be life. It's about something that matters, which is, for example, defense or relaxing because the conditions are so good and you mm -hmm. can enjoy the conditions. So it's true, we go back 
all that way, and the marvel of it is to discover in those simple creatures who clearly do not have a nervous system, who, as, I've, as far as I'm concerned, don't have a mind, don't have mm-hmm. consciousness, cannot have feelings, but yet are intelligent, they can sense, they can respond, they can adapt to the environment and fight it off in many different ways. And to see what's in those creatures that is somewhat like our own lives. Mm-hmm. And I think the one of the important messages of the book is that it actually, you can say, it starts there. It's not that you cannot talk about a complex culture in bacteria. That would be a little bit abusive unless you're making a joke about <laughs> bacterial cultures, which is a <laughs> yeah, different thing. But the fact is that there are certain lines of behavior, there are certain strategies of response that foreshadow the kind of responses that we find in complex social behaviors and in cultures. Because in part, you see them acting quasi-socially. I would say I see them acting socially. I would be reserved as the, the culturally, I think you have to put in quotes, but socially you can. I mean, the complexity of social behavior in bacteria is absolutely astounding. But So, so it is social behavior. It's, it's not anything else. But it's social behavior that sometimes resembles certain cultural situations. And there I would put it in quotes, mm. not to offend our marvelous, highly successful human cultures. I wanted to get a sense of how these questions have tended to be treated in the sciences. So one of the things that obviously I had a clear affinity for the book, given that in humanities, there has been over the past two decades-ish, a renewed interest in affect, usually coming from feminist philosophy, especially philosophers that follow the Deleuzian kind of threads in terms of affect worlds and thinking about the relationship between emotion, both as a way to resist the Cartesian subject Mm -hmm. um, and also a kind of radical anti-Kantianism. But how do those, I mean, I know how they work out in humanistic study, but how have emotions and feelings tended to be treated in the hard sciences, like in neuroscience or psychology? That's a marvelous question because they tended to be treated rather badly. So uh, I'm going to give you a few facts for you to see the spectacle that we're Mm. facing. If you go back to the 19th century, they were actually treated very well. And in fact, you know, I love to live in the 19th century scientifically because (laughs) it was a very rich time. And if you think about people like William James or like Claude Bernard Mm -hmm. in France or even Freud, for that matter, these people really had a pretty good notion of the role of affect in human life Mm -hmm. and a lot of respect for it, and they mined it in very different ways, but beautifully. In the 20th century, probably as a result of the tremendous development of scientific techniques that allowed for a lot of measurement, a lot of finding of specificities in processes, there was less interest in the emotive aspects, the feeling aspects, if you want. Affect, in general, went by the wayside, whereas there was enormous success in studying perception, for example, movement, eventually studies of memory, and, of course, language and reasoning throughout. So emotion took a back seat. And this is so extreme that I can tell you that the first meeting of the Society for Neuroscience where emotions were discussed. In fact, was the first meeting that had any contact with affect was in 1995. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. There was a meeting that I organized along with a colleague of mine in New York who studies emotion in animals, and that's Joe Ledoux, and nobody had ever tried that. Not only that, five years before, and this was at the time in which we had begun our studies in our laboratory on emotion, and actually there were very interesting results. But just five years before, there was a very distinguished colleague of mine who was used to seeing what I studied, which involved language, memory, a lot of perceptual visual studies that our laboratory had become well known for. And when I started working on emotion, this person sort of shook his head and said, you don't see what you're doing. You're demolishing your career. Mm -hmm. You're going so Mm -hmm. well. Don't go into emotion. It's death. And you know, I'm here and I don't think it was death at all for me and for the colleagues that saw that change. But it was, to answer your question specifically, it was not well treated until the end of the the past century. Now it's quite well treated. Is that in part because of the prioritization that tends to happen in human cultures also of intellect over body? And that failings have tended to be associated with like poor intellect, non-intellect, and with the body. Squishy things, you know, you don't want that. No, 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 it's a very bad attitude. And I think that right now we're going through, in fact, it's quite possible that even as more and more of the role of effect is recognized, and I think it is being recognized clearly. For example, the reaction that I've had to the work of our group and even the reaction to this particular book in Europe just before the publication here. Clearly, people want this, and it's not just the people in the humanities, it's Mm -hmm. the people in the sciences in general. But still, the weight of intellect is there And there is actually a possibility, especially at the time in which there is a huge success of artificial intelligence and this enormous devotion that people have to algorithmic accounts Mm. of mind, it is quite possible that we're actually going to go through yet another period in which emotion and affect is going to be pushed back and we're going to glorify the algorithm. Math instead of oh, yeah. mind. Yeah. yeah, the denigration of emotion is it was Plato's error, right, as opposed to Descartes' error. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's long, long-standing. Get rid of the tragedians. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah. You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Antonio Damasio author of The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have a couple of exciting announcements. This is LARB Radio's Dan Lopez, and I'm here to tell you about a fun opportunity this coming weekend. Check out Lambda LitFest LA. It returns for a second year with a preview weekend, April 14th through the 15th. We have a great lineup of programming prepared for you, including a discussion with presidential inaugural poet Richard Blanco in conversation with fellow Cuban-American author Eduardo Santiago. We have a submission workshop facilitated by women who submit and a panel discussion about writing queer characters for the screen featuring Michelle Badillo from One Day at a Time, Brittany Nichols from Transparent and Suicide Kale, and Jen Richards from Her Story and I Am Kate. It's all free and open to the public. Lambda Lit Fest LA takes place in the central LA Hollywood area. You can find out more information by visiting lambdalitfest.org. Again, that's lambdalitfest.org. Thanks, and hope to see you there. 
publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Antonio Damasio, author of The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. Can we talk a little bit about the notion of homeostasis? Because I think to get to the, the largest implications of the book, which are about the nature of culture rather mm-hmm. than bodies, um, yep. individual bodies, we kind of need to talk about your sense of homeostasis. My own, I realized, was quite naive after reading your book. I realized that I had a, I had a very naive sense of what homeostasis meant, which was a kind of, some kind of steady state that we're at before something happens. Hmm. And uh, but you have a, you've developed a notion of homeostasis in the book that is um, very dynamic, mm-hmm. and includes a lot of different systems, um, yes. all interacting at the same time. Can you right. just give us a sense of? How yeah. we should think about homeostasis. I, I think the, the 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 key is that dynamic, and it's the fact that it's not at all stability. It's not at all equilibrium. Equilibrium, least of all, you know, the thermodynamically equilibrium is death, and want to stay away from that <laughs> if at all possible. So what we want is a, a state which is very forcefully dynamic, and sort of pushing itself into the future. It says, uh, uh, my image of homeostasis, I'm going to give you a, a poetic description that is actually not just poetic. It's the notion of desire. Mm. The, w- what's implied in homeostasis is the choice of one of several possible steady states, which is different from equilibrium. It's a, it's a state in which chemically things are going pretty well mm. and are compatible with continuation. But it is not equilibrium. It has to have disequilibrium in order to be able to push forth the process. And it is th- th- something that I, I, I sense in desire. When you desire something, when you seek something, when you want something, there is a sort of movement forward, something that impels you to be in a certain state and to modify your state in order to get to what you desire. Mm. Uh, well, that's exactly the way homeostasis operates. Uh, homeostasis operates by constantly trying to, you know, homeostasis is all about finding energy sources so that life can be continued. Life is a process that will die out immediately if you don't have energy supply. So you need to procure energy sources and you need to incorporate, transform, and, and generate energy 
But not only do you need to have energy to meet your needs at the moment, you need to have a surplus of energy that allows you to be pushed forward into the future. So it's that, that, that's where the dynamism is. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't, uh, if, if you have your bank account at home and you come to the end of the month and you're just with the, the, the money in and the money out are equivalent. Did you see my bank account? Is no, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, but I've seen mine. Uh, and and uh, if you're there at a point of equilibrium without having savings for the next month, mm-hmm. you are at the mercy of what can happen if you're suddenly in need. Mm-hmm. And need in biology is very common and it comes in the form of stress. So any kind of stress you know, when you have the flu, you have stress. Any kind of stress, if you don't have extra energy to meet the demands of what your immune system is going to do while you are in stress, you're going to die. Hmm. Well, at least you're going to be very sick. So it's it's this sort of constant uh, arranging for the surplus that will sort of drive you into that future and desired or not that's, mm, yeah. that's not, not so much the, so it's very dynamic and, and so it's not about quiet life there's nothing quiet about life life is a fight and uh, and it's uh, uh, you know yeah. yeah so it's the motive uh, the emotive as as, as motive it's a tale of, it's emotive. a tale of love and glory <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now for me the joy of reading the book was getting a, this kind of very complex sense of the central nervous system, the, okay. the peripheral nervous system, which is feeding back all sorts of information, right. Um, uh, right. and metabolism, and as you say, fuel, and the, the fullness of um, of life as uh, as this dynamic system. And then you take from that the idea, which I think is related to something that Darwin said about why human beings are not subject to the laws of evolution in exactly the same way other species might be, mm-hmm. which is that human beings can make decisions about how to affect the kind of homeostatic state of their exactly. themselves and their, their social group and their world. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so we have, you know, unlike uh, bacteria or unlike many other very complex creatures that are not, that do not have a mind uh, do not have feelings, do not have consciousness. Those those things all come together. In other words, when when you talk about having a mind, uh, you talk about having a mind because you have the possibility of feeling and construction, constructing images of the outside as well. And and when you talk about feeling, you also talk about consciousness because it's uh, people don't see this, but it's absurd to talk about feeling if you didn't have consciousness. I mean, you, you need consciousness to know that you feel. Mm-hmm. So the two things, in all likelihood, mm-hmm. came together. You know, it's a package. It's a little bit paradoxical, but it's not. The two things are, you know, joined at the hip. Okay, so we have these creatures that don't have that possibility of mind-feeling consciousness. Obviously, don't know why they're doing why they're doing what they do, cannot modify the behavior intentionally. But we can, and that's really the great novelty. So, in in effect, we have two completely different levels of homeostasis. The natural one that is operating whether we want it or not, and then this new gift that we have of being able to feel and therefore being able to influence the process of homeostasis because we can know 
what works and what doesn't. And we know what works and what doesn't thanks to pain and pleasure mm. and suffering in general. Mm. And it, it, that is the great informative element. And because of that, we can interfere with the process. And because of that, I think we were able to create cultures which sort of continue for you know millennia that desire, which was not a conscious desire, of maintaining life. And now we can make that a little bit more conscious and a little bit more deliberate and the success depends sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't right now it's not working very well but it doesn't mean that it will not go back to working well one beautifully efficient image of this was the human need to get out of the sun yeah and therefore to find shade yeah that's a very rudimentary form of culture uh, and then to build a roof to build a roof and exactly. then eventually to make air conditioning yeah. <laughs> exactly. At larger and larger levels of sophistication and yeah. complexity. Yeah, very good. It's interesting. The the I was very struck the the other day. Uh, I was interviewed by um, an architect, and that was for a major architecture journal in France, and they were very excited about the connection between homeostasis and the building of the first. Housing, mm. uh, exactly the point that uh, that you are making, Tom. Uh, so, so it was very interesting because it's, it's one of the many things that we invented. Why? I mean, why would we invent that? We invented that because of the suffering of being either in the sun or in the middle of a, a bad winter with snow all around mm. us, and you needed to have that that protection. Can you? talk about, at the end of the book, you kind of close with a long meditation about how we might direct feeling towards the good, because there is definitely a way in which the very types of orientations towards homeostasis that you've been talking about can lead to something bad. So mm -hmm. it leads to air conditioning, amazing, changed life for everyone, right? We couldn't imagine living without it. But that is also itself changing our environment mm. in incredible ways. And mm. not just that, right? There's also ugly feelings, bad feelings, those kind of things that lead us to do destructive, sometimes even self-destructive behaviors. Right. Especially at a time like this, what, how are we to reorient our sense of feeling in a way that might help us either navigate an increasingly dangerous or precarious world or address the dangers and precarities that we're now experiencing in our environment. Right. How is a good question? Carefully is the answer. Okay. <laughs> the, well, it, it's, you cannot do it without knowledge and, and reasoning. In other words, we, we, we have this very tight coupling between our ability to feel and to reflect on what you feel, and to reflect on what others feel, and, and then the, the knowledge that you can get about these phenomena uh, and the ability to reason through them. Uh, so it's, a, it's really a very, a very close uh, coupling. I think right now one of the things that concerns me is the fact that with, uh, with a culture that has been speeded up in terms of information, with everything around us and with all the gadgets we have available, um, that we have less and less time to reflect. And of course, it's possible that people of uh, younger generations are going to master things, multitasking, and, and will continue to get a reasonable amount of reflection in spite of the fact 
that things are so speeded up. Well, and I should also say that that the speeding up of information is also a speeding up of our experience of feelings and emotions, right? Right. Because those all trigger various feelings and emotions. But actually, it can produce uh, something which is a bit untoward, in fact, which is that by speeding up, it may not give time for emotions and feelings oh, to be strong. So, you see, the, the, the things work in very different dimensions. In fact, one could say that we have two fundamental registers of operation in our minds, which really means in our biology. One which is very, very fast and actually operates on the basis of the top echelons of our nervous system, which has to do with how you perceive the outside uh, environment, uh, how you deal with language, how you deal with uh, reasoning. That can be very fast, very precise. But you have this world of life regulation, which is the world from which feelings emerge and where emotions operate. And that is a slow world. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is take a look at the, the, the structure. The fast world that is that, that depends that, on which reasoning uh, depends is actually a world of myelinated fibers. These are very neurons that have a myelin insulation, which is really an insulator along the axon cable, uh, and which allows them to work very fast. Most of the things that we describe as our moods, our feelings, our emotions, our levels of excitation, our sleep and uh, wakefulness cycles, all of this is very slow in terms of the operation, and it depends on elements of the nervous system that are not insulated, and therefore they're they're, they're leaky, Mm -hmm. and and therefore they have to work more slowly than the others. So as you go faster and faster and faster, you may actually lose the possibility of having some of the guidance that would come from the feeling process. You may be too fast for feeling. Okay. So then is that one way that we might approach it, is to consciously slow ourselves down in terms of how we're processing the information that we see from the outside world? For example, for example. But but there are are numerous ways in which you need to to look at today uh, that clearly have to do with the enormous technological progress that Mm -hmm. we've had, and none more important than what is happening in digital media. All right. There's so much more that we could talk about, um, but I'm afraid we're, we're running out of time. I, I, the chapter on consciousness is fascinating to me because I'm, I'm uh, involved in narrative in my work life in, yeah. in so many different ways. You say something that's a, and maybe you could talk about it in relation to the William James's stream of consciousness, but you say subjectivity is a relentlessly constructed narrative. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by that? It's a, a relentless process of putting one thing after another along a sequence. Mm-hmm. And, and it's constantly our consciousness of a given moment, uh, or even the very basic process of uh, assembling subjectivity, it requires these steps that have to come in, in the proper sense. A little bit like you're telling a story. That mm-hmm. story is constantly being told sort of our organism as a whole, with the brain as as clearly very central figure, but not alone, uh, is telling the story of how is it that your organism is reacting in a certain way, and there's a certain kind of emotivity that is going to produce a certain feeling, but then at the same time, it's also telling itself the story of how you are 
looking at something and in that looking you are uh, having a sequence of processes that enable you to create the frame of your organism and that allows you to create this moment of subjectivity which requires not only the acknowledgement that there's an interior that is sticking with life but there's also an overall limit of your organism which is a cell membrane in a bacterium but in us is the the skin that drapes our skeleton mm. and our musculature and then it tells this amazingly fascinating story of what it is that you're doing in order to achieve these steps so when i look at you it's not my retinas and my visual cortex cortices that are working only uh, there's also the movements of my eyes, the adjustments that I do in inside the eye. All of those, by the way, are handled by entirely different components of the nervous system, nothing to do with the visual system. Mm. And they are really, it's as if they're saying, if you would write a script, is that they're saying, by the way, I have now moved my eyes towards the right so that I can see Tom, and now I'm focusing on him, which is, of course, different from focusing on the screens over there or focusing on you. And mm -hmm. all of those adjustments are there, and there's a script that is writing all this stuff. Right. And you get to be conscious because you have all this stuff going on moment by moment. And uh, you spent a few pages talking about religion um, mm -hmm. as well, and I kept wondering if you'd done any uh, experiments or, or work with uh, questions of mindfulness and, and, and Buddhist meditation and, 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 and various forms of uh, attention that are kind of tried to design a way to disrupt the relentlessness of the subjective narrative. Right. Now, I have, I have not done any formal studies. I'm, of course, very interested mm -hmm. in the process, and I talk to the people in our group that are very interested, for example, in mindfulness. And I think it's very important, and you just said the key word. You know, it's it's the, the way in which by having attention redirected, you, you have less focus on the, the troubling stuff that mm -hmm. would maintain you in the wrong track. Um, but no, I have not studied that. But the, the one thing that I on religion in the book that I find interesting is that it's, a, I think, a very good example of an homeostatic origin for a certain process of belief, for example, or or of association and of mending what's wrong individually and in a group, uh, which I think worked. Uh, and which, of course, because it is so much linked to origins, it doesn't mean that it's uh, it's going to come to a, a good result. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes people tell me, well, if, if religion is so homeostatically oriented, why is it that so many people have died because of it? So, you know, how it starts is one thing, how it ends is another. Right. You know, we have no commitments to uh, physiologically to how the thing is going to be developed because that's exactly where the the cultural space uh, comes on its own. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the more complex the cultural enterprise, the less the, these motivators that are biologic are going to do their job. You know, they, they're there to start the process, but then it becomes infinitely differentiated and far away from the, from the biology. And that's one answer to Eric's um, fundamental question. Yeah. yeah. I think we're actually going to have to end it there, unfortunately. But um, I, well, before we do that, actually, the... You can ask a question for the director's cut. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I, one of the things to get back to what Tom was saying about mindfulness that I am actually very fascinated with is the way that um, the attention actually delivers on all the things that you talk about being obfuscated in our experience of feelings mm-hmm. and emotions, the difference between the mind and the body, right? So mindfulness by forcing you to notice the feeling or mm-hmm. usually the emotion, like when I'm yeah. angry, right. actually turns your attention to the biophysical changes that are happening in your body Absolutely. as you experience the emotion. So it really connects the mind and the body as unbreakably bound to one another. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We've been speaking with Antonio Damasio, author of The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feelings, and the Making of Cultures. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Mm